You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. They marveled at him. The Indian warrior chief, his hair, his feathers, his full eyes, his Roman nose. They gasped at him in Norfolk, Virginia, cheered for him in Baltimore, stumbled over each other to get a glimpse at him in Washington, D.C., filled the streets in Philadelphia. They marveled at his entourage, his priest, the prophet, in the front, his sons and brother marching behind single file, escorted by U.S. military. Indeed, when Chief Black Hawk of the Sauk Nation came to New York to visit, President Andrew Jackson had just been in town the day before, and the newspapers noticed it. They noticed that the crowds had been just as large for Chief Blackhawk as for Andrew Jackson, and maybe even larger. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Both are skilled at war. And maybe, just like the president, the paper said, the red chief of the forest earned his place, leading a nation because of his skills as a warrior. The chief of the Sox tribe ruled over an area that encompasses parts of four states today. This day, in 1833, he was looking at cannon, huge shells in various armories, witnessing the American naval fleet, seeing crowds in Baltimore, changing ships just to get on a different ship, no time to stop, two cheering crowds on the dock in Cincinnati, dancing, chatting out at a ball in their honor in Philadelphia. Here's from Black Hawk's autobiography. We next started for New York, and on our arrival near the wharf, saw a large collection of people gather at Castle Garden. We'd seen many wonderful sights in our way, large villages, the great national road over the mountains, the railroad, steam carriages, ships, steamboats, and many other things. But we were now about to witness a sight more surprising than any of these. We were told that a man was going up in the air in a hot balloon. We watched with anxiety to see if this could be true, and to our utter astonishment, we saw him ascend in the air until the eye could no longer perceive him. Our people were surprised, and one of the young men asked, Is he going up to see the great spirit? When I was traveling last summer on a steamboat on the river going from New York to Albany, I was shown the place where the Americans danced the war dance. He's referring to West Point, where the old warriors recount to their young men what they have done to stimulate them to go and do likewise. There are little notes from the American newspapers that really make this seem like a pleasant visit. 
In Norfolk, they present Black Hawk with the Cherokee Phoenix, a newspaper printed in an Indian language that was edited by a full-blooded Indian, uh, Cherokee, and was a means through which the Cherokees could communicate their views, their complaints, their wishes, and have the government see it. The obvious suggestion was this was a better way of behaving in the way that his tribe did. Black Hawk seemed highly pleased, paid attention, and said he would take it away and bring it to his people. From the New York Evening Post, 1833, perhaps nothing interested the old warrior as much as the view of the arsenal. On White Street, Thursday last, they were shown every part of this imposing and beautifully arranged repository of the implements of war. They are first shown the ordnance on the first floor, the shells, the mortars, the pounder, the ten-pounders, the thirty-two-pounders. Now the New York Evening Post a bit of opinion. He doubtless learned again the lessons a severe military route had taught him. From a paper in London relaying what's in the Richmond Inquirer, artists of ambulance have taken portraits of Black Hawk, his son, and the prophet. The Indians conducted themselves with the greatest propriety. Old Hawk's handsome son was very fond of the beautiful American squaws. He is attached to music, and for one session, he presented a ring from his finger to the piano player, who politely refused, as he was surprised and embarrassed for transgressing what must have been a custom he was unfamiliar with. In meeting Colonel Eustace at Fort Monroe, Blackhawk said, Brother, we have buried the tomahawk, and from here on out, the sound of the rifle will only bring death to deer and buffalo. From the Wyoming Herald in Pennsylvania, the source is from a friend close to the president. Here they come, hurrah, hurrah, those with a salutation of noisy boys as the party approached the War Department. Curiosity over the tiptoe urged motion, and in a moment, I was in a melee of Washington sweeps, gentlemen stretching forth to get a glimpse and a general buzz of which one is Blackhawk. They were led to see the Indian Bureau, the gallery of Indian paintings, which they commented looked like those they knew from some bygone days. In New York, he's entertained to delightful piano music, and his sons were gawked at and perhaps gushed over by young women, American squaws, the newspaper called them, treated to food, plays, the best lodging. It was hard to believe that Black Hawk and his party were prisoners. Even hostages. warrior chief, painted and real in the flesh, it was said, had made war upon the United States. But did he? He didn't believe he had. The president greets Chief Blackhawk at D.C., the great father of the nation addressed the delegation. But he made it clear, you are hostages to be sure your nation keeps your sacred commitment for peace. 
They had not dream of a hostile action, newspapers say, the prophet told President Jackson when they crossed the river. All they wanted was what was theirs, to honor the Black Hawk lands, the treaty, to live in their village. They were promised either to live in their village or get adequate compensation. Jackson heard their concerns, and Black Hawk hands Jackson a feathered peace pipe, which he smokes. We will consider what you said, the president said, according to newspaper accounts. What is now called Black Hawk's War, that's what it's called in my history textbook, Black Hawk's crossing from present-day Iowa into Illinois with hundreds of warriors, a thousand villagers, would raise the alarm across the country of settled American frontier at that time. U.S. Army would be summoned, militia would be summoned, newly recruited militia would be summoned with locals like Abraham Lincoln, who would get involved to protect their settlements and earn cash and prestige. Well-known names in the Army, such as Zachary Taylor and Jefferson Davis, would also take part in Black Hawk's War, as it was called. The current Sox Nation, the descendants of Black Hawk, do not call it that. They call it a misunderstanding, an attempt to reclaim one's house that one was living in before going out hunting, and they call it a massacre. I was recently in uh, Burlington, Iowa to see uh, some of the homes of my family. I mean, my grandmother went to high school there. My great-grandfather Carlson and great-great-grandfather Carlson lived there, and sort of my great-great-grandmothers lived there, and in my view, um, thrived in the prosperous city of Burlington, Iowa, and southeast Iowa, right on the Mississippi River. I'm grateful for the hospitality that the town showed me, this traveler from New Jersey on a recent trip. It's a nice town. I really do think it's a bit on the upswing as new restaurants are opening in what had been largely abandoned factories, and there is a thriving downtown. I enjoyed going to the Des Moines County History Museum. It is a gem to learn not only a bit about the local area and people that you may not know, but to learn about the frontier, to learn about how people came to settle Iowa. But we live in a double consciousness in America, certainly, because wherever we live, we live on previously Native American land. So my grandmother's hometown is also the hometown of the ancient Sauk tribe and the homeland of Chief Black Hawk. Their land, though, is a large land encompassing the states of Wisconsin, Missouri, Iowa, and Illinois. I mean, parts of it. But it's primary village near Rock Island, Illinois, all over Burlington, Iowa. You'll see signs of Black Hawk. There is a large um, Black Hawk seal in front of the Des Moines County Courthouse. Des Moines County, incidentally, is not Des Moines, Iowa. That is a, it's the same river, but not the same place. It's about three hours away by car. Des Moines County is on the Mississippi River. Des Moines, Iowa is more in the, closer to the centralist part of the state. In any case, wherever you are, you'll see Black Hawk's image. You'll see statues. You'll see paintings. He's in all of the tourist documents. He's in tourist murals at the Port of Burlington Visitor Center. You just can't escape it. In the name of the uh, motto of, of the slogan of Iowa, the Hawkeye State, it retains that name that really comes from the Hawkeye newspaper, uh, the idea of being a Hawkeye, of, of watching things closely. The attribute of a good early Iowa citizen comes from when Des Moines County was one of the largest, it and Lee County, where Fort Madison is, were the largest counties of the relatively small new state of Iowa in 1846. 
where Burlington would have been a key city, and now is just one of many cities. The name Hawkeye, directly related to Chief Black Hawk, the Hawkeye State, remains. Burlington's newspaper is the Burlington Hawkeye. Local historians, including author Russ Fry, strongly believe that the area he held counsel on before launching his attack uh, is an area known as Black Hawk Rock, which is almost a natural amphitheater created by bluffs right next to the river. Burlington, Iowa is, is on these kind of large hills and valleys where you can be on the North Hill and see beautiful views of the river and the city because of the way that the bluffs are shaped. And apparently... Um, many historians believe looking at all the records, this rock is exactly where Black Hawk describes the spot where he would stand and it kind of created a national amphitheater. I was born at the Sox village on Rock River in the year 1767 and now I am in my 67th year. Blackhawk is said to have written an autobiography. He gave a story to a French fur trader and now U.S. government interpreter who spoke socks and English. Contemporaries, when it came out, criticized it. The governor of Illinois at the time called it a catchpenny publication. Not really his. Not something that Blackhawk ever wrote. But that governor was a Jacksonian Democrat, supportive of his Indian removal policy, and not a fan of seeing things from Blackhawk's side. I side with Russ Fry and other historians uh, who believe the Black Hawk desired to tell a story and was alive to tell it. My great-grandfather, Nanamaki, or Thunder, according to the tradition given to me by my father, Paisea, was born in the vicinity of Montreal, Canada, where the Great Spirit first placed the Sauk Nation and inspired him with a belief that at the end of four years, he should see a white man who would, to him, be a father. Consequently, he blacked his face and ate, but once a day, just as the sun was going down, for three years, and continued dreaming throughout all this time whenever he slept. When the great spirit again appeared to him and told him that at the end of one year more, he should meet his father, and directed him to start seven days before its expiration, and take with him his two brothers and travel in a direction to the left of the sun rising. When he came in sight, his father came out to meet him. He took him by the hand and welcomed him into his tent. He told him that he was the son of the king of France, that he had been dreaming for four years, that the great spirit had directed him to come here, where he should meet a nation of people, that they should be his children, and he should be their father, and that he had communicated these things to the king, his father laughed at him and called him a Mashena. But he insisted on coming here to meet his children, where the great spirit had directed him. He had now met the man who should, in future, have charge of all the nation. He then presented him with a medal which he hung around his neck. Nanamake informed him of his dreaming and told him that his two brothers remained a little way behind. His father gave him a shirt, a blanket, and a handkerchief, besides a variety of other presents and told him to go and bring his brethren. The three newly made chiefs returned to their village and explained to Mukataquet, their father, who was the principal chief of the nation, what had been said and what had been done. The old chief had some dogs killed and made a feast preparatory to resigning his scepter, to which all the nation was invited. 
After a long time, the British overpowered the French, the two nations being at war, and drove them away from Quebec, taking possession of it themselves. The different tribes of Indians around our nation, envying our people, united their forces against them, and by their combined strength, succeeded in driving them to Montreal. Here, our people first met the British father, who furnished them with goods. Their enemies still wantonly pursued them and drove them back to different places across the lake. At last, they made a village near Green Bay, on what is now called Sox River, having derived its name from the circumstance. Here they held a council with the Foxes, and a national treaty of friendship and alliance was agreed on. The Fox tribe abandoned their village and joined the Sox. This agreement, being mutually obligatory on both parties, was neither sufficiently strong to meet their enemies with any hope of a success. They remained here for some time, until a party of their young men who descended Rock River to its mouth had returned and made a favorable report of the country. They all descended Rock River, drove Kasakais from the country, and commenced the erection of their village, determined never to leave it. I want to pause here in Black Hawk's story and just talk about a few things. One is that it's not as easy as simply like one chief leading one tribe, like Western depictions of what American tribes were like in his story. Uh, the other is that not only did the British and the French have to do with the movements of Indians and the Americans, but also other Indian tribes, you know, forced um, Indian tribes to move in different places. And so the Sox tribe moved from Canada to Wisconsin and eventually to Illinois. That's going to be important, this Rock Island area between Iowa and Illinois. It's also important because for the U.S. in the 1860s, years, you know, 30 years after this, it's going to be so important for the development of railroads, that Rock Island. That's going to be like the key junction point across the Mississippi for railroads. There's going to be a lot of fighting about that. People who want that railroad, people who don't. Put that aside, but it's, it's, it's very important already to the Indian tribes in the area. The other thing to note, the Sox kick out other Indian tribes in acquiring their village in, in what is now Illinois. Blackhawks becomes chief of the nation at 40 years of age. There, there, there isn't really one chief of these nations, which is kind of differs from the way that we perceive Indian nations, but he is the warrior chief. So certainly in time of war, you know how presidents become strong in time of war? Well, they look to the warrior chief in times of war. Here's Black Hawk again. At this village I was born, being a lineal descendant of the first chief, Nanamakay, or Thunder. Few, if any events of note, transpired within my recollection about till about my 15th year. I was not allowed to paint or wear feathers, but distinguished myself at an early age by wounding an enemy. A leading chief of the Muscow nation came to our village for recruits for a war against our common enemy. I volunteered my services to go as my father had joined him and was proud to have an opportunity to prove to him that I was not an unworthy son, but I had courage and bravery. It's so not long before we met the enemy, and a battle immediately ensued. Standing by my father's side, I saw him kill his antagonist and tear the scalp from his head. Fired with valor and ambition, I rushed furiously upon another and smote him to the earth with my tomahawk. I then ran my lance through his body, took off his scalp, and returned in triumph to my father, he said nothing, but looked pleased. They now get into a war with another enemy, the Cherokees, and here his father, Nanamake, is killed. 
The loss of my father by the Cherokees made me anxious to avenge his death. About the close of the ninth moon, I led a large party against them, and against the Chippewas and the Osages. This was the commencements of a long and arduous campaign, which terminated in my 35th year, after having seven regular engagements and numerous small skirmishes. During the campaign, several hundred of the enemy were slain. Now, he's busy fighting, and so he has a note here. We usually paid a visit to St. Louis every summer, but in consequence of the long protracted war in which we'd been engaged, I'd not been there for some years. St. Louis is where they would meet French fur traders and agents. Our difficulties have been settled. I concluded to take a small party and go down to see our Spanish father during the summer. We went, and on our arrival, put up their lodges where the market house now stands. After painting and dressing, we were called to see our Spanish father, and were kindly received. He gave us a variety of presents and an abundance of provisions. We danced through the town as usual. The inhabitants were pleased. But on my next and last visit to our Spanish father, I discovered on landing that all was not so right. I inquired the cause and was informed that the Americans were coming to take possession of the town and country around St. Louis. We were to lose our Spanish father. A few days later, the Americans arrived. I, company in my band, went to take leave for the last time of our father. The Americans came to see him also. Seeing their approach, we passed out at one door as they came in another. We immediately embarked in our canoes for our village on Rock River, not liking the change any more than our friends in St. Louis appeared to. Um, but other elements of the tribe have given away lands, and particularly there are deals made with William Henry Harrison, St. Louis, that gave away some of the Sox homelands. Black Hawk does not agree with it, does not want to follow it. But um, other tribesmen, other rival chiefs, for instance, Keokok, who leads a group, there's still a town named after him in Iowa today, the more pro-administration Sox tribe member. And they sign a treaty that says, okay, if you leave your original village, we'll send you corn from it. Um, the negative side of it is you've been dispossessed of your land, and certainly Blackhawk's not happy about that. But he and others agree to it as kind of a, well, I'm renting it out, right? I'm getting receiving income from my former village. And that's the deal that's signed, that's the treaty that's signed, but squatters on that land do not live up to it and send really nothing to the tribe as it's now located across the river from Illinois, across from their village in what is today the state of Iowa. At this time, in the 1820s and 1830s, it would not have been settled by Americans yet. Iowa is completely Indian land, maybe a few traders and agents. This from John Hall on his book, An Uncommon Defense. Although the Sox had surrendered their Illinois land nearly a quarter century before, and confirmed the treaty again that did this in 1825, they continued to occupy villages on the Rock River. They simply didn't follow that treaty and didn't move. It is in 1827 when white settlers, squatters, really took possession of Sauconoc, the principal Sauk village. Though the Indians are really the aggrieved party here, the Illinois governor, Ninian Edwards, sees the agitation between settlers and Indians as a reason to remove Indians. Some, like Keokuk, decided to abide by the 1804 treaty and go to Iowa. Others wanted to resist, and among these, the most prominent, Makatemi Sheikiak, Makatemi Sheikiak, Black Hawk. 
Here's from Blackhawk's autobiography. When arriving at our village, we gave about the news that a strange people had taken possession of St. Louis and that we should never see our generous Spanish father again. This information cast a deep gloom over our people. Sometimes afterwards, a boat came up the river with a young American chief. That time, Lieutenant, and afterwards, General Pike, he's talking about Zebulon Pike, and a small party of soldiers aboard. The boat at length arrived at Rock River, and the young chief came on shore with his interpreter. He made a speech, and he gave us some presents, in return for which we gave him some meat and other provisions we could spare. We were well pleased with the speech of the young chief. He gave us good advice, said he would be treated well by our American father. He presented us an American flag, which we hoisted. He then requested us to lower the British colors, which we were waving in the air, and to give him our British medals, promising to send others on his return to St. Louis. This we declined, as we wished to have two fathers. Here's... um. Burlington, Iowa historian Russ Fry talking about Blackhawk's autobiography and the authenticity of it. Modern and more scholarly critics are more receptive to the idea that the autobiography was in Blackhawk's own words. The editor of the 1999 edition of the autobiography, Roger Nichols, writes, Though uncertainties exist, the resulting narrative does contain ideas that could only have come from the Sox warrior himself. In the 1955 edition of Blackhawk, Uh, autobiography, Donald Jackson demonstrates persuasively that much of the data came from Black Hawk. Similarly, research from my own 1992 Black Hawk and the Warrior's Path uncovered substantial evidence mostly unavailable in 1833 to corroborate the claims made by the interpreter and editor the Indian actually did narrate much of the material. So in 1949, the Wisconsin legislature was interested in the route that Black Hawk took through its state, and they hired a historian to figure that out, and um, you know, it makes for a pretty good history of the war. Uh, William Thomas Hagen, who would graduate student at this time, would go on to be a historian. This is what the report to the Wisconsin state legislature says about the 1804 treaty. Governor Harrison did prevail upon the Sauk and Foxes at St. Louis to sign a treaty conveying to the United States in return for some $2,000 worth of trade goods and a tribal annuity of $1,000, the title of approximately 50 million acres of land in what is now northern Illinois and southern Wisconsin. The treaty contained a clause, though, that was to lull the Sauks and the Foxes into a false sense of security. Article 7 granted them permission to remain on their lands until the government should dispose of it to actual settlers. And for almost 20 years, the Indians enjoyed undisputed possession of the land that bore lodges and cornfields. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances— I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. 
So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if... Instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world. If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. William Thomas Hagen, as a showdown approached, the cleavage within the tribes widened. One faction, sensing the inevitable and recognizing the superior strength of the Americans, was prepared to abandon the ancestral home and settle beyond the Mississippi. For leadership, this faction looked to Keokuk, principal war chief, and the Sauk whose mother had been half French. Keokuk had risen to a position of great influence and was highly regarded. Also highly regarded by the white settlers is Thomas Forsyth, Indian agent at Rock Island, from 1819 to 1830, regarded him as the most competent of the Sauk leaders and as a personal friend. The activities of the squatters naturally aroused resentment among the Sauks. The Sox and Fo- the Sox and Foxes, a faction of whom refused to recognize the validity of the Treaty of 1804 on the grounds that the Indians would have fixed their marks to the document, had no authority to act in the name of the tribe. The average Indian did not comprehend how such a negotiation could be considered binding upon all members of the tribe. Under the Indian system of communal ownership, it was impossible for a few members to alienate land belonging to the nation as a whole. Intensifying the ultimate insurgency of the Sauk and Foxes was the fact that for two decades they had continued to enjoy the use of their lands. They tended to forget that it was through the generosity of the United States on paper that they were occupying it. Black Hawk in April 1832 leads a contingent of 500 warriors and a thousand villagers to reclaim is settled. And a key thing to understand, again, it's the the nature of describing anything in American Indian history, is that there's a lot going on. There are also other isolated groups that are using Black Hawk's large march to make smaller marches. And they're not necessarily aligned with him or listening to him. And there are a group of, um, several groups of settlers massacred in various incidents across the state of Illinois. This is all going on at the same time. But Black Hawk in American newspapers is known as the British Band. 
the Illinois Weekly State Journal, April 26, 1832. Fellow citizens, your country requires your services. The Indians have assumed a hostile attitude and have invaded the state in violation of the treaty last summer. The British band of Sox and other hostile Indians, headed by Black Hawk, are in possession of the Rock River country, to the great terror of the frontier inhabitants. I consider the settlers on the frontier in imminent danger. I am in possession of the above information from gentlemen of respectable standing and from General Atkinson, whose character stands so high in all classes. Here's what the army says. The regular force under my command is too small to justify me in pursuing the hostile party. To make an unsuccessful attempt to coerce them would only irritate them to acts of hostility on the frontier sooner than they probably contemplate. Your own knowledge of the true character of these Indians with the information herewith submitted will enable you to judge of the course proper to be pursued. I think the frontier is in great danger, and I will use all the means at my disposal to cooperate with you in its protection and defense. So Governor Reynolds of Illinois attaches that letter from Governor Atkinson in the newspapers to sound a call. And there's going to be similar calls all throughout the state of Illinois, and they are going to build a large... um, militia force. Among those who respond is a lawyer and state legislator, Abraham Lincoln, currently of New Salem, Illinois, in Sangamon County, but um, soon to be a very successful lawyer and politician in Springfield. Zachary Taylor was on his way to Fort Snelling in April when he learned that General Henry Atkinson wanted him to join him and put down an Indian uprising. When he caught up with the general in May, he discovered that Black Hawk and the tribes had moved up the river about a hundred miles. They not bothered any whites, nor did they appear to be seeking trouble, Waite says. Nevertheless, the United States Army was out to do battle. In mid-May, the regulars were joined by 1,600 Illinois militiamen under Brigadier General Samuel Whiteside. William Thomas Hagen, spreading like wildfire, the news of Indian Creek, Sycamore Creek, and other Indian raids threw the frontier into a panic. Rude forts were hastily constructed, and from the village of Chicago, the local Indian agent issued frantic appeals for troops. A correspondence of the Galena Galenian described the situation in the virtually isolated lead mining region. Travel east, west, north, or south and nothing is seen but waste, destruction, and dilapidation. Fields partially made, hogs, cattle, fowls, etc., running wild, houses vacated, and left with all the furniture in them, and not an inhabitant within 60 miles. Yes, and this is an important piece of context that Egan brings up, that in the area of northern Illinois, there are these lead mines, and lead is a precious commodity at this time. Indeed, there was a kind of lead rush similar to the gold rush in the 1840s, and the mining of ore was in progress in Wisconsin, Illinois, uh, all over the upper Mississippi River Valley. Galena is based on the Latin word for lead. And in the time we're talking, you're somewhere in the neighborhood of fifteen to 20,000 tons of lead ore is being produced per year, and that is 80% of the lead production in the United States. Yeah, you know, I don't have figures for the time period we're talking now, but 
Just 10 years later, this region is going to be producing 80% of the lead production of the United States, about 30,000 tons of lead per year. And actually, miners from this area are going to be some of the first, given their skills, to get over to California and do the California gold rush. This is from Black Hawk's autobiography. We commenced our march up the Mississippi, our women and children in canoes, carrying such provisions as we had, camp equipage, etc. My braves and warriors were on horseback, aimed and equipped for defense. The prophet came down, and joining us below Rock River, having called it at Rock Island on his way down to consult the war chief, agent, and trader who said there was a war chief on his way to Rock Island with a large body of soldiers. The prophet said he would not listen to this talk because no war chief would dare molest us so long as we were in peace, that we had a right to go where we pleased peaceably, and advised me to say nothing to my braves and warriors until we had camped that night. We moved onward until we arrived at the place where General Gaines had made his encampment the year before and encamped for the night. The prophet then addressed my braves and warriors. He told them, follow us and act like braves and we have nothing to fear and much to gain. The American war chief may come, but will not, nor dare not, interfere with us, so long as we act peaceably. We are not yet ready to act otherwise. We must wait until we ascend Rock River and receive our reinforcements, and will then be able to withstand any army. Okay, so it's important to understand that because of a mixture of prophecies, which in the Indian way of thinking is as good as any information you're going to get, and from some information they're getting from Winnebago's and other tribes in the areas. It is Black Hawk's belief he is getting some reinforcement, not soldiers perhaps, but ammunition, guns from the British. This is not such a terrible thing for him to think, by the way. The British and Chief Black Hawk fought against the Americans in the War of 1812. They fought to defend Canada at first, there was some disputes between Black Hawk and the British who thought that, you know, they thought they were getting land out of the enterprise, and the British did not give them that. But in any case, he believes he has a connection with the British, and they're going to help in his new quest to reclaim his village. That night, General Atkinson, with a party of soldiers, passed up in a steamboat. Our party became alarmed, expecting to meet the soldiers at Rock River to prevent us going up, but we discovered the steamboat had passed on. I was fearful that the war chief had stationed his men on some high bluff or some ravine that we might be taken by surprise. Consequently, on entering the river, we commenced beating our drums and singing to show the Americans we are not afraid. Having met with no opposition, we moved up Rock River leisurely for some distance. When we were overtaken by an express from White Beaver, this is the Americans, with an order for me to return with my band across the Mississippi again, I sent him word that I would not. I would not recognize his right to make such a demand. I was acting peaceably, intending to go to the prophet's village at his request to make corn. We moved on and encamped some distant below the prophet's village. Here another express came from the Americans, threatening to pursue us and drive us back if we did not return peaceably. The message roused the spirit of my band, and all were determined to remain with me and contest the ground with this chief should he come and attempt to drive us. We therefore directed the express to say to the war chief, if he wished to fight us, he might come on, 
we were determined never to be driven, and equally so, not to make the first attack, our object being only defensive. This we conceive to be our right, to defend ourselves. So, you know, what's going on here? As Chief Blackhawk is moving through what is now the state of Illinois, trying to reclaim, get to the point where he can reclaim his village, he's getting a lot of different messages from various sources, including several from the Americans, who are like, please turn back. Winnebago's came to an encampment. They said the object of their mission was to persuade us to return, but they advised us to go on, assuring us that the further we went up Rock River, the more friends we would meet. Our situation would be bettered. They were on our side, and all of their people were our friends. We must not give up. Something's changing, though, and he asks a group of Indians that have arrived, had they received any news from the British on the lake? They said no, and I inquired if they had heard that a chief of our British father was coming to Milwaukee to bring us guns, ammunitions, goods, and provisions. They said no. Here's author Russ Fry. His book is Black Hawk Rock. Black Hawk and his band of 1,000 people, including women and children, crossed the Mississippi River and proceeded to Saucanuck, their former village located near today's Rock Island, Illinois. However, they decided not to attack the nearby Fort Armstrong until he had reinforcements. Instead, they traveled up to the Winnebago village of the Prophet and waited for help. Word arrived. The British were not going to send supplies and other tribes were not joining in large numbers either. Given this, he makes the decision to turn back. I concluded to tell my people that if the Americans came after us, we would go back, as it was useless to think of stopping or going on without more provisions or ammunition. And they inquire about the local Indian tribes. Patawatomis, Winnebago's, do they have any corn? They don't have much. But by now, U.S. forces are upon him. 